0: What's crackin everybody? Welcome back to the Highway with Kyle Shut. I am so excited for this week's guest. It is none other than J.H. Williams III, one of my favorite comic book artists. We're going to talk about his new book Echo Lands out August 25th. This man has worked on so much stuff over the years. He's worked with Alan Moore on Promethea, uh, Neil Gaiman on The Sandman Overture. He's even done an album cover for The Sword. We're going to talk about all of it you all know the deal if you like what you've been hearing on this show go ahead and ring my bell slap me upside the head whatever the hell the internet wants you to do to not miss an episode I don't even know what any of this shit means anymore and if you want to go one step further and help keep these wheels rolling you can find us at patreon.com/ the highway you can get early access to next week's episode help keep my lights on even get yourself a shout out on the program this week we got Heather Roby thanks Heather way down in Florida we got Leah Montgomery one of my favorites. We got Adam Pomerantz, Bob Mavity, Rusty Watts. We couldn't do it without y'all. I, I sincerely appreciate your help. We also got to give mad love to our sponsors, Hyle Sound. Because if you like the way I sound, it's because there's a Heil in front of me. That's enough of the fine print. It's time to talk about comics. Let's do things my way. The Highway. What's going on, man?
1: Oh, you know, crazy busy and uh, <laughs> all that stuff.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's I, love- a, I, mean, I I feel like I've been busy during the whole pandemic, just like with uh, having to hustle or whatever, but uh, especially now yeah. that things are opening up, um, I've been busier than ever. I just, every day I just have too much to do. It's awesome. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. There was a, there is a, a short period last year where, you know uh comics kind of had a where things got rough and a lot of companies halted things totally and, um and even image comics where my new project is going to be at you know wasn't sure what was going to go on and I, it was kind of strange because at that time I ended up kind of halting a little bit of work on Echo Lands uh just trying to see what was going to go on and took the opportunity to do some shorter pieces. And that's how I ended up doing that, uh, Batman black and white thing. Beautiful. Um, and
0: Becky, uh, Cluden, yeah, who, who's been on the show too. She did busy. a cover for it. And too, like that was just scored. That whole project was awesome.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we've stayed busy. Um, you know, and for the most part, even though comics had that rough patch primarily because like diamond, Distribution halted payments and stuff.
0: Oosh, I didn't know that.
1: Uh, yeah, they halted payments to a lot of the publishers for a period of time. And so everyone kind of had a, a meltdown, a small meltdown freak out, which is, you know, normal. Uh, but then they, you know, slowly figured itself out. And for the most part, from what I understand, comics in terms of sales weathered everything really well compared to some other industries.
0: It's the funniest thing that I, uh, I think I saw some picture that was like uh, talking about, uh, uh, I can't remember exactly how it was worded, but it was talking about how artists are like not an essential um, uh, job in, in this you know pandemic and all this stuff. And I was just like, well, the person that made that graphic design that you just posted this picture on was an artist right. <laughs> and the people that designed this app We're artists, and you know what? If you ask me, I think artists are pretty goddamn essential (laughs) because the number one, like you know, uh, thing that people needed during this whole time of isolation was art and just entertainment and and, uh, content, if you will, and everything. So, yeah, it's uh, exactly funny how that um, that got brought to light as well. For me, at least, yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, I think we hurt a lot of people. You know, I'm not sure how, how it was for you guys. You know, you guys are a pretty successful band, but I imagine, you know, the smaller acts in the, in the theater people that do, you know, would do plays and things like that probably, you know, were hurt pretty badly by this whole thing. I'm sure.
0: It was, uh, I'm friends with somebody that works on a film set too. And he said that even, you know, he felt kind of bad because cause he had a job and he was getting paid pretty good money to like do film sets. But even then it was just, you could tell they were, you know, uh, trying to uh, cut as many corners as possible and keep costs down and stuff like everybody in every uh, line of work got hit really hard. But, um, but we've all heard enough about that. Let's uh, let's talk about the fun stuff, man. I'm really excited that you came on. I I absolutely love your art style. I I feel like um, when I, whenever I create music, I I try to, you know, I love heavy metal and, and, you know, black Sabbath slayer just as much as I love, you know, the temptations and the JBS just as, just as much as Uh I love, uh, you know, Wagner, just as much as I love Cannibal Corpse. So it's it's all over the place, and I try to um, incorporate my, you know, um, just the noise I hear in my head and all that stuff. I try to, like, create my own sound out of it. Uh, but you, being a, a visual artist, um, whenever... I don't know if I can speak for you personally, but whenever I look at your work, it, it's just like you marry a watercolor with, like, hardcore, beautiful penciling, with, uh, you know, other, just uh, ink. It's just... You combine so many styles within your frames. I was just wondering... um how you got your start, like what, what made you want to pick up a pencil and tell the world to go fuck itself? (laughs) Um, I'm not
1: sure. I mean, my parents would joke that, uh, particularly my mom, she would say that one of the first things I ever picked up was a pencil. Um, so I, you know, I'm not sure where, where the inspiration early on as a kid came from to draw. I just, I always just remember doing it. Um and I would, you know, early on would be inspired to draw some of the superhero characters and stuff I would come across in comic books, you know, at a very early, very, very early age. I was so young at the time that I didn't understand the concept of what makes a comic book. I didn't understand that there, you know, the people behind the the curtains there making this stuff. Um Uh, until I was probably kind of silly uh, thinking about it, but, you know, I guess I was around eight years old when, you know, the the idea of creators uh, struck me. You know, I knew Stan Lee. So, like, when I would pick up Marvel Comics as a kid, you always saw Stan Lee Presents, right? Yeah. So I knew Stan Lee, but um, as a kid, I was super... uh, into toys and ended up falling in love with, um, these Japanese toys called Micronauts. Uh, and I was just insane over those. And then one day I'm looking at comic books at like a Seven Eleven spinner rack. And there's a Micronauts number one sitting there, uh, from Marvel comics. And I'm like, I, and I was like, Whoa, you know? And so I bought it and I was so obsessed with these toys. I, 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 sat down right away and read the comic on the, the stoop of the Seven Eleven parking lot and um, was just blown away by what I was seeing and reading. It was unlike any comic I hadn't really encountered before. And I don't know if that was my childhood obsession with the toys playing a role in feeling that, but I ended up being so obsessed with it that I poured over every little detail on the pages and that was the first time I really, really noticed the credits box, and saw you know the entire creative team. You know, Bill Matlow, Michael Golden, Al Milgram. Uh, I can't remember who the colorist was, but um, and I was like, I was like, whoa, you know, it just like this realization happened for me at that point, and I became obsessed with that comic and the art and the story in it and ended up showing my friends um, this comic and they're like oh well if you like that you gotta see this other comic called Uncanny X-Men which is around the Claremont, Dave Cochran John Byrne period God damn. yeah and I saw that and it was just as I felt just as compelled by that as I did the Micronauts even though it was quite different and that's when I sort of like a realization hit me about oh well I draw I could do this. This is what I'm going to do. <laughs> so I kind of made that decision to be a comic book artist at, you know, eight or nine years old I love it. <laughs> and never deviated from that. From that, uh, <laughs> Probably, you know, maybe not the best decision, you know, uh, no,
0: I think you did pretty good.
1: You know, life goal, really, I Being so set my ways. So early on, I really kind of like didn't give myself a choice to do anything, but, so if if it didn't work out, I, I, I probably, who knows what would have happened to
0: me. <laughs> right. I feel that way about guitar. Like I didn't make a lot of money, but I definitely like made the right decision <laughs> You because know, I, I couldn't imagine doing anything else with my life uh, other than what I did. So fucking kudos to you for sticking with that. That's yeah, exactly. Uh, that's beautiful. Um, and, and you, um, you know, got to work on, honestly, some of my favorite intellectual properties of all time. And I just, I, I wanted to, to ask you what that was like, um, because uh, the, I, I, Alan Moore, obviously, is just a, a, a legend and everything. Uh, but uh, it's kind of where I saw a lot of your early works uh, was with uh, Promethea, your run on that. And um, just a, what, what was it like working with Alan Moore at that time? I mean, I, as an artist, I didn't know if you were like in touch or if that was all through the mail at the time. Cause that was, it, it was, I mean, I guess email was a thing by then, but I didn't know how that went. So I just wanted to ask like, what that was like
1: yeah no Alan didn't use email I don't even know if he still he still might not use email (laughs) Uh, I got all the scripts from him like uh, through fax machines Jesus (laughs) you know his scripts are notoriously long so you would get these long giant faxes of these scripts that are just like endless, endless rolls of paper um but you know, I did get to talk to him on the phone quite a bit back then, and uh, a super, super nice, warm, caring individual. Uh, and it, but at the same time, it'd be kind of a little bit intimidating to talk to as because I was you know a huge fan of his. So uh, it would, you know, at the time, it was very n- nerve-wracking at first. But he made it very easy. And kind of was like, talked to me on an equal level as him, even though at the time I, you know, my career was barely, you know, underway. in to some respects, um, and he just, you know, treated, you know, the whole thing as an equal. Uh, so that was like a great learning experience and a great creative experience, um, and particularly. Uh, how open he was to hearing any ideas I have. Um, so it became a very good collaborative experience on that project. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure what else to really remark about it other than, you know, how genuine of a caring person he is. Um, What's fascinating, though, is like, I don't know, have you ever seen any of
0: his scripts? Uh, n- not actually, like, in the writing, no.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, because it's interesting when you converse with him, because his scripts are insanely detailed, um, you know, and some sometimes a one panel description could go on for, you know, over a page of text or so that you could read, uh, single-spaced. Um, as an example, this is an extreme example Uh, Do you remember the uh, Mobius strip page? Yes. That one was, I think, five pages long, one paragraph, single space. (laughs) Uh, But what's fascinating about when you read his, his descriptions and when you talk to him is how much when he's conversing, you can see why his scripts are detailed the way they are. So, his brain work, seems to me to work in a very fascinating way. Like at the, at the beginning of a conversation, when he's trying to make a point at the beginning of what he's about to say, he already knows what his end point is going to be as he's speaking. I,
0: I get and that. so, yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah, so so, like so he's like having a battle very, with
0: himself the whole time <laughs> trying to spit yeah, it out.
1: Well, like, well, no, it's more like this sense of clarity. Oh, nice. And, and the fact that he can—he knows what his endpoint is before he even speaks, uh, even if it's a long answer to something. And so, because he thinks in the in such com- uh, complex ways with language, you can see—I can see why his scripts are so dauntingly detailed when you read them. If you ever get a chance to read one, I, I recommend you—you you get. You, you try it out and see what I mean
0: I mean I've I read enough you, of his books I, I would really uh, appreciate reading something like from that angle um, I, I have read uh, uh, a few film scripts and like I read a, a Tarantino script one time It was kind of the same way where like his <laughs> scripts are so dense <laughs> with the scene descriptions so I, I could only imagine what yeah what Moore's uh, was like
1: yeah and it was fascinating in terms of you know being an artist to work on that stuff you know I mean Alan will get So detailed where, you know, there's a joke me and a friend of mine would have where, you know, yeah, he'll he'll describe the cracks in the pavement. (laughs) (laughs) But at the end of the day, you know, he'll go through this long detailed description. But at the end of the day, he would always say, you know, but if you see it differently or a better way to do what I'm describing here, go for it. And I wouldn't have to call him like the first couple of times I would call him like hey I'm thinking about doing it this way and he's like whatever you think is best Jim so he would kind of like go through this process of you know offering lots of lots of detailed information but then once it left his hands he's sort of like well now it's up to the other person to do what they think is best with what I've given them wow. so it's pretty fascinating uh, that he could relinquish in that way
0: That's really cool. How was it uh, on the flip side of that coin? uh, Just uh, because you also got to work on uh, the the Sandman overture, which I thought was uh, just incredible as well. I I love the original. I loved the the, it was a prequel, I I suppose, uh, if you could call it that. But what was it like uh, working with Neil uh, (laughs) on the opposite side of that kind of hero coin? Um, (laughs)
1: Um, Again, it was extremely collaborative, but in a kind of a different way. Uh, well in terms of the scripts too like um, where Alan has this methodical sense to the detail I kind of feel like uh, Neil's scripts well they give you all the information you need there's this almost floating openness to how he's delivering the information to you Um, and uh, almost a lyrical kind of feeling to some of it um and, that, but, and then also would be quite open to, you know, whatever suggestions or whatever I wanted to do. He kind of would like let, let me toy with things uh, much in the same way Alan would let me toy with things, which is, you know, that's sort of what you want. You want to be able to have that kind of freedom to move around if you need to. Uh, but what was super fun, there was a couple instances in the process of Sandman that were fun for me is at the, before he started writing, he asked me for a list of things I'm, in, I, I'm interested in or would like to draw, and so I just came <laughs> up with this list. I just came up with this list of like some of the things just came to mind, or other things were like, "Oh, that would be fun," or just uh, you know a simple word like "oh, insects," you know, or westerns or whatever, and I would just throw this list down, and he found in some way or another throughout the entire thing to get it all in there.
0: Wow. <laughs> and uh, so, dude, that's incredible.
1: Yeah, and so it's like, so he really wanted to, he really thought about that list. It wasn't just, you know, uh, it wasn't lip service in any way to ask for that list. He, he consciously looked for ways to kind of inject those things in there in a way that fit the narrative and felt natural. Um, and then another moment that was really, really great uh, I can't remember which issue we were working on but um, he called me and was I think he had a question about something and or, or wanted to pick my brain about something and he, I w- was waiting for the next set of pages of script and he decides to on the phone for about 20 minutes or so to read to me what he's written so far <laughs> <laughs> And so that that's was wild.
0: like,
1: yeah, because Neil has such a great speaking voice. It's like this, <laughs> there's this almost spiritual calmness to the way he speaks that yet sounds like a storyteller. And so I'm sitting there on the phone just absorbing this thing, this thing that's happening of Neil Gaiman reading to me over the phone. You know, <laughs> it was just <laughs> amazing. Wow.
0: Yeah, I'm speechless. Sorry, uh, but yeah. <laughs> Again, there was hardly a better artist to to capture that world than you. You did a fantastic job. I was I was really, really stoked on that whole project. Oh, thank you. Of course.
1: Yeah, it was it was a kind of an intimidating project to do. Because, of course, of course. <clears throat> you know, I was a big fan of the original stuff and a fan of Neil's. And with this being a prequel, sort of a sequel at the same time, I felt like, well, what can I do to to make it feel like a Sandman tale that people, you know, the old school fans can to buy into visually, but yet still somehow bring something new to the table? Uh, so that was a bit nerve wracking at first, um, you know, kind of putting myself in that headspace and that challenge, that emotional challenge, mm-hmm. you know, to, to take on. So it was a bit, you know, intimidating at first, but, you know, uh, we found
0: our way. Did a great job. And, um, uh, I'm really, really excited about your new book, which, which we should totally talk about. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Echo lands. Uh, it's, uh, you, um, gave me the honor of reading the first two issues and dude, I, it, it's, so fresh and new but like really classic at the same time and, and and uh you have a little i don't know if it's going in the actual issue but at the the last page is kind of like the story of of how it came about with um yeah and, and how you created it and uh it's just it it's taking you like 15 years to get to this point because of like all the crazy <laughs> opportunities that you had it kind of reminded me of uh my own sort of musical career where it's just like there, at a certain point you know in your upswing there's just not enough time to do all the things you want to do and uh, some ideas yeah. get left by the wayside. So it's so rad that uh, you finally had the time to bring this project to light because it's an amazing story. Um, and it, 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 I think there's a quote of mine on the uh, one of the the promo pics that's like it, it really does read like a blockbuster, like Hollywood car chase. It's just so fast paced and uh, just beautifully drawn and painted. And uh, yeah, I just love it. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, Tell me about, I mean, because I love the story in the back, but I mean, if you, for people at home, if you don't know what this book is about, yeah, Echo Lands, it's amazing. Like, how did, how'd the idea come about?
1: Um, well, early on when I was a kid, you know, like I said, I would draw stuff all the time, but, you know, also as a kid, you know, drawing stuff I know, like Iron Man or the Hulk or Spider-Man or whatever, you know, or drawing, trying to do drawings of the Micronauts or whatever. You know, I would do that stuff, but then, you know, at a certain point when you, I guess because my, um, my attractiveness to comics made me think about my art, not just as drawing cool things or fun things, but, you know, telling a story. And so when your mind starts to go into that headspace, you start inventing things that are yours, right? Uh, even at an early age. So You know, the main character in Echoland's Hope Red Hood is a character that um, I came up with as a kid. Uh, And I was thinking about this uh, the other day, that there's other elements within the story that, you know, are from the same time period. Like her, the main adversary she faces off was invented around the same time. He just looks completely different now. Um, And so... It was a character that always lived in my head, and I knew that I wanted her to to kind of exist in a world that is different than our than ours but yet familiar, um, and always dreamed about trying to do something with it. And then when I met Hayden Blackman, it was around the time I was uh, on early on in on Promethea, he and I did a, a Hellboy short story together. Um, and he worked for Lucas Arts at the time. And uh was writing, you know, various Star Wars things and tidbits of other things for Dark Horse comics. And they uh asked us asked him to do this Hellboy short story and we collaborated together on that. And it was such it was fun to do. And so I'm like, huh, maybe I should mention this this thing I have to him to see if we could develop it into something. And I did, and he loved the basic, you know, notion of what what I wanted this thing to be. And so we just started having conversations about it as we were both on our own, you know, career trajectories and we would just talk back and forth about it and uh, uh, slowly develop it. And it's such a complex, I'm glad we had that time, even though it's kind of like, wow, that took a long time to come to fruition, but it's good that it did because it's a very complex concept that we have once people see when we have the big reveal of what everything actually is, you know, oh, man. how diverse and complex it is, is it needed the time to kind of germinate properly. Um, and uh, so that's how it got started at the beginning. We built this solid outline of what we wanted to accomplish with it and, and things like that. Uh, but then the writing process, you know, the r- actual writing of the issues didn't happen until... You know, after Sandman Overture um, was completed. Uh, but it was, you know, and it, what was fascinating about that process, we were, were writing the scripts from this outline we created, but then as we started writing it, there are certain elements that were kind of like, oh, this is the, we need to open this up, this particular detail up, and it kind of brings some of the characters into different directions than we originally uh, thought. Uh, which is kind of cool. So it's almost like it begins to write itself, you know?
0: Yeah, man, I love it. <laughs> God, seriously, I cannot wait to see where it goes. Uh, it's it, it's already like so fun. I just it's you know it, it's a really brutal story, and and it's yeah, but it's God, it's yeah. so fun. I'm really really excited about seeing where it goes. Um, but yeah, we oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just
1: gonna, I was just going to say, uh, you know, we wanted to do something that at the outset you think you know what you're reading and then you know then a certain you know you turn a page and you're like oh my god that's horrific or whatever to kind of keep throwing these stylistic or genre curveballs into this tale so you so it doesn't ever feel like it's just meant to be one thing even though it is an all-encompassing concept um And then the other thing in terms like of it it being fun, that was also kind of important to us is to kind of like, how do we tell this, you know, serious adventure tale and have it have serious consequences, but still is enjoyable to, to go along for that ride. Um, And I think part of that might stem from the subconscious idea of, at least for me, it's sort of a love letter to some of the weird comics I would read when I was a kid from the 1970s how and how far out they could get, even though it's a serious tale, they could be pretty wild um, and so I think there's a lot of that that in its heart on this thing, even though it, it it's through a lens from of today the way it moves and functions you know
0: it's just beautiful it really is it, it, Thank- everybody, yeah, go uh, when's the first issue come out? August 25th. August 25th. Everybody go buy issue one of Echo Lens. I swear to god. <laughs> you're going to love <laughs> it. But uh but uh but you know, I mean you're obviously a legendary comic book artist, but uh you've done so many um album covers too. And uh for everyone at home, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about uh you doing the uh the art design for Apocryphon, the the Four sword oh. album, uh which yep. was uh, Arguably, probably our most uh, striking album cover, and uh, just all around design package and stuff. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, and um other ones too. But yeah, let's uh, let's start there. What's it? Uh, what? Because uh, especially in the um, in the end pages of the Echo Lands, you list every single band that you listen to <laughs> while you were drawing the, yeah. <laughs> the issue. So it's obvious that you're a music fan. So what's it like um, creating? You know, an album design to to uh, music that has no image yet.
1: That it's for me, it's like it's a challenge I relish. I, you know, like you mentioned, I'm a big music fan, and and being able to work with you know one of my favorite bands like you guys, you know, was like when I got that email from I think it was from your guys' manager at the time. Mm -hmm. I think it just email came out of the blue asking me to if I'd be interested and it was like a no-brainer. I was like, "Yep." <laughs> you know. Uh and for me, I like one of the fun things about music, particularly in, you know, in the age of vinyl records that's come back is how the art plays such a role or the packaging plays such a role in how you view the music, not in terms of taking the music as what it is but in terms of its packaging it becomes kind of an artifact and that works in tandem and <clears throat> so i really wanted to kind of be thoughtful and conscientious about every detail uh for apocryphon um and make sure it was something that fit what you guys were doing musically um and be able to kind of like be you know, it's singular, of course, but at the same time, it needed to feel like, yes, this is this is a sword album cover. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so that that process is fun, and it's personally, creatively, it's a good outlet. You know, it's something completely different than comics. You know, you end up having to think in different terms and maybe more um, less direct icon. Well, is I. Iconic and loaded with iconography, but not in the same way as where you're telling a, you know, page by page narrative. Mm-hmm.
0: And you can't that hear a comic book, too. So really? that's <laughs> totally different. Right. Yeah.
1: But at the same time, you know, when I was working on the art for Apocryphon, I I did want all the pieces to feel like, like yes, you know, you pull out the inner sleeve and it clearly belongs. The inner sleeve belongs in this cover. And the back of the cover belongs with that cover and that inner sleeve and have it have a sense of its own uh vague narrative vibe, I guess you could say, without it being like a concept record, you know? Totally. So
0: yeah. One one thing that did stick out to me, um, that you asked us for during that time, because every every idea that you put on the table. I was just like, yeah, it's amazing. That was genius. <laughs> of course, like it was just like go with it. But you asked us all uh you, you um I don't know how you worded it exactly, but you wanted to create some sort cuz apocryphon, uh the word itself, I mean it, it refers to a uh, uh, the the books of the Bible that have been hidden away, you know, and uh, hidden, hidden knowledge basically, any sort of tome of um knowledge that's uh, supposedly hidden from uh public view mass consumption and you wanted to create a, a secret alphabet um, yeah. sort of within it and all uh, and all these sigils and stuff. And you asked us each individually... I'm not going to say what everyone's letters were. I'm not going to say what they all meant to anybody. Right. But uh, yeah, you asked us each to provide you with three letters that you created our own uh, unique uh, secret alphabet symbols out of. And I just thought that was so fucking cool because I still... <laughs> I put... Uh, uh, cause, uh, Jimmy, unfortunately doesn't, uh, he plays drums. He doesn't have a pick, but, uh, the, the three of us that do use a uh, pick, well, Brian plays with his fingers too. So he doesn't even use a pick, but we got him picks anyway. But, uh, the three of us uh, had <laughs> our, uh, secret alphabet sigils put on the back of our picks for that whole album cycle. So if you have a, if you have a sword pick from the Apocryphon tour with a weird symbol on the back, the, yeah, J.H. is the guy that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> made him. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, that was fun because, like, when I was talking to JD about, you know, uh, the the album title and some of the lyrics of the songs and stuff. um, And he had mentioned about, you know, how you described the word, the definition of the word apocryphon. And also, I think he mentioned it's like a secret knowledge or secret language. And it made me think about this thing that I learned while working with Alan on Promethea about the alphabet of desire, which is a magical practice where for anybody out, you know any of the listeners who want to try it, you, you come up with a a mantra or some sort of goal you have in mind and you write it down and you take the first letter from each word and create a sigil out of those letters Whoa. Um, and and you sort of meditate on it. Uh, for a while and you can either keep it around or you can then destroy the sentence like burn it or whatever and you sort of just let it go you let it go out into the universe and see if it comes back to you as the thing that you desire that you that you're wanting to accomplish and so when I talked to JD about that in relation to what he was saying he thought that was a really cool thing and I'm like well let's Let's do that then, <laughs> you know, uh, and sort of adopt that idea of turning the song uh, titles into sigils and then having you guys come up with your own mantras and just, just give me the, the, the letters to turn into a sigil. I don't need to know what it is. That's only for each one of you individually. You know, I just thought that was kind of cool and it made it, I, I felt like it adds a personal touch. Uh, to the project not that all your projects aren't personal but a personal touch between the entire creative process between what I was doing and what you guys were doing you know like this interesting connection point you
0: know absolutely my schedule by the way is fucking badass you nailed it Uh, (laughs) (laughs) it looks so good uh i'll i'll I'll, I'll, I'll say mine uh mine was trb that was uh those those were my three letters but yeah that and uh yeah yeah you know that
1: was so oh thanks and what was so cool is like when we the decision to make this uh instead of listing the names of the songs on the back is just to put the sigils Mm -hmm. with uh, you know that was awesome. So it just kept it kind of like anybody looking at the package or like it creates a sense of mystery. It makes them want to open it up and put the record on, you know?
0: Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and ironically, it's one of our uh, least available records. Uh, it just, every time we press it, it sells out. And it's just, you, sometimes I see them on eBay for like a crazy ass amount of money. So oh, it's yeah. funny yeah. how uh, an album called Apocryphon ends up being the hardest uh, of our albums to get. That's like some sort of hidden oh.
1: knowledge. Huh? It's time for time for, uh, oh. How long before we're at the anniversary
0: point <laughs> oh god you know what you know what hit me uh is you know, it was one thing whenever the 10-year anniversary of the sword first album came up or the second album but it's like once we start hitting the 10-year anniversary of like our later period shit i'm like oh god <laughs> <laughs> we're so old i <laughs> could, <laughs> i kid, I kid. Yeah. but um but yeah uh, like Pr- oh, I mean,
1: yeah, promethea just had
0: yeah. Twentieth anniversary. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, um, I, I and also, um I mean you've done a lot of album packages um all over the board, but uh one of my favorite bands, Blondie. Um I mean you got to work really closely with them uh whenever you did their uh I don't know if there's a latest album, is two albums ago, I, I think the package or still working with them two, but, two. but, but I mean, um two. yeah, what was it like uh, uh, working with Blondie? I mean come on, dude. Like if you don't like Blondie, <laughs> I don't like you you know, so <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, that was for me, uh, it's, it's hard to quantify into words because the first music I ever bought with my own money was a Blondie
0: record. No shit.
1: Yeah. Why? I believe it was the, the single atomic. I think that was the first record I ever bought with my own money from them and ended up backtracking a little bit on their music at that point. You know, because Heart of Glass and all the, you know those <laughs> cl- giant hits or whatever, uh, and I I became obsessed with them. Uh, I even was a member of the Blondie fan club. So yes. I even uh, somewhere stash yeah stashed away. I have like the, the little zines that they would send in the mail and stuff. <laughs> you know, I have all that stuff. And then, um, uh, and you know. Fast forward many, many years. My comics career is doing really well. Uh, Batwoman Volume 1 has come out. Um, And uh, James Syme at Isotope Comics, which I know you're friends with him. Absolutely.
0: He's going to be a future guest, too. He's up next, I promise. (laughs) Love you, James.
1: Um, (laughs) uh, You know, we connected from a store signing one time uh, in San Francisco at the isotope, the first time we ever met them and ended up uh, really becoming good friends with them and connected over the fact that, you know, they're Blondie fans too. So, you know, Blondie would always come up with a conversation with those guys and then they ended up going on tour and they were going to play a show near the isotope. And James pinged me and said, Hey, we're talking about buying these VIP tickets where we can do a meet and greet. And they're, and they're like, do you guys want to uh, drive up and go with us to that? And, you know, so we're, Wendy and I, my wife, uh, decide, we decided to, to do that. And shortly before going, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm going to bring him a copy of, of Batwoman. You know, I signed it uh, to them and all that stuff, and I brought it. And the, it was interesting because the meet and greet was before the show, so we have the meet and greet. I feel like I'm going to have a panic attack. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, meeting my favorite band of all time, and uh, there was, you know, everything is awkward. I think it's, it's equally awkward for them as it is for the fans because Absolutely. they don't know who we are. you You know. So the you know it's just this thing that they're doing. Um, so I ended up giving them the book. Uh, they took pictures holding the book, and then it was, then it was you know time to shoo us all out because they need to get you know calm down and be ready for the show. Um, and as we're walking out, Wendy noticed uh, Debbie in one of the side rooms. The door was open. <clears throat> she's holding the book and she's flipping through it. And she's pointing towards us as we're leaving, so she was showing it to somebody. And then after the show, the concert was great, of course. There's no no question about that. Uh, so after the show, we're out at the merch booth and we're talking to the opening band, and they're like, "What are you guys doing out here? You have you have VIP tickets." And we we tell them, you know, well, we were told it was only for the beginning of the show, and. Um, you know, they're like, no, 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 no way. And so they bring us back to the back room, and there's other other fans back there. And so you know, we're like, okay, cool. So we're hanging out for a bit, and so it's me, James, uh, Kirsten, my wife, Wendy, and our friend, um, um, uh, Victor, sorry, my name, my, my brain's a little fuzzy. I, I had bad sleep last night. Um, <laughs> Uh, we're all hanging around, kind of like, oh, this is interesting what's happening. There's no band members in the room. And everybody's just kind of off in their own little groups talking to each other. And then the band finally starts coming in. And Chris Stein sees us and makes a beeline straight for us. Damn. And he's, he comes over and starts talking to, to us. He's like, hey, that book you gave us, this, that book is really great and starts having this conversation with us. And James Syme, the brilliant man that he is, says to Chris, he's like, he's like, Chris, Chris I gotta tell you, this guy who, gave, who did this book, he, he, he knows Alan Moore. He, he <laughs> worked with Alan Moore. And Chris Stein goes, you know Alan Moore? And the whole dynamic of the conversation changed from that point. Um, And he was like, he's like, oh my gosh, he's like, I, you know, that's so great. And, and me, I have this tendency to nervously blur out things that maybe not are professionally appropriate, uh, (laughs) you know, because of my enthusiasm and I see something, a possible opportunity right in front of me. And I'm like, I I just got to say it. So I just go, well, if you need ever needed a, an artist and Chris looks at me and he pauses for about two seconds, he goes, next album cover. Nice. Just like that. And, you know, we p- continued to have a little bit of a conversation. He took my phone number and, you know, after that, we're all giddy and nuts. We go and have uh, – like a late, late, late meal at some diner. And we're all like, can you believe that? That was so crazy. And we stayed overnight in the area. Uh, but by the time we were driving home, we decided to check our messages. And Chris Stein had already left a message on my phone. Damn. Uh, and so, cause like at, at the meal, we're like, oh, I can't believe he said that and all this stuff, you know? And you kind of were like, what a cool idea. And it's awesome that they said that to me, but at the same time, you don't really believe it's a real thing, right? Because it's like, it's Blondie, right? Um, but then, you know, no, I had this phone message from him and he's like, he's like, yeah, you know, I have to apologize. I didn't realize who you were until I looked you up after the concert and all this stuff and was like excited over my comics.
0: That's really career. cool, man. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then it just kept going from there. I mean, and then then, in terms of the working process, you know, we ended up both Wendy and I helped them name the album uh, because, you know, Chris, he was so open. He's like, yeah, we're not sure what to call it. Cause I kind of wanted to know what to, it was going to be called in order to do the work. And so we ended up getting involved in the, the naming process Uh, which was cool. And then in terms of uh, the actual visuals for the record, you know, they sent me demos and stuff and I got this particular vibe from it. And I'm like, you know, it makes me think of these things, uh, particular things. I'm like, what do you, and I ended up having a phone conversation with him, with Chris and Debbie on the phone. And, uh, and they were, they were both kind of like, oh yeah, these are cool ideas, whatever you want to do. That's, that's all the involvement that I had from them in terms of developing the images. They just purely left it up to me. That's really cool. Which was so cool, but extremely nerve wracking and made me paranoid, you know, when for sending them the work, it's like I sent them all the images and I'm like, uh, are you, you know, was waiting with bated breath the entire day, hoping that I wasn't going to get a phone call saying they hated it. (laughs)
0: I know uh, the feeling. Oh my God.
1: Uh, and one of the most awesome things I, is uh, I mentioned to him, like, they hardly ever print their lyrics in the record.
0: Th- that's exactly what I was going to ask you about.
1: Yeah. And so I always feel like like that's one of the things I, I appreciate about working with you guys on the sword is your willingness to put the, the lyrics in the packaging. I just I always just think that's like a good idea, you know? Yeah. Um, and with Blondie, the the record that they made, Ghost of Download has it's like this kind of cool, smooth digital dance kind of thing going on, a little bit on the electronic side. And, and so I I was like, what do we do with all the graphics to try to make it feel more organic? And one of the things that I came up with is like, could we print their lyrics in their in their own handwriting? And so that was part of the conversation uh, with Chris and Debbie. And I'm like, how did you guys feel about that? Are you, would you do that? And and Debbie says, well, I don't really have any lyrics written down. They're just, they're just done on a, on a word processor. (laughs) (laughs) And Chris, Chris is like, well, that's awfully efficient. And you know, so it was like this little joke between the two of them. I thought was super cute and funny but, so what they ended up doing is she she wrote down the lyrics to the songs that she wrote the lyrics for. And then Chris wrote down his lyrics. And then uh, uh, one of the other guys who wrote one, some of the lyrics wrote, wrote it down. And so I got all, all these handwritten lyrics to them. And I had told them, I'm like, just send me photocopies or whatever. But they sent me the original handwritten lyrics. So sick. So I have a binder of those you know
0: they never asked for it back it, or anything huh like,
1: nope it's like <laughs> you know, of that time is you know here's here's living proof of yes I did this Damn. Uh, and then you know so and, and so it's like with you guys you know getting to know you guys doing the work on Apocryphon we've all stayed in touch and stuff over the years and it's been the same thing with them they're just super cool people
0: god that is so cool so do, and again, thanks, Jim, for like coming on the show and just like telling all about this history because this is um, this is super important stuff to me. And I, I hope everyone out there like just gets as much enjoyment out of all these uh, just amazing stories as I do. I, I, I really oh, appreciate you dishing about it. <laughs> Seriously, you know,
1: I'm I, I'm I'm happy you asked me to come on. It's super fun to do. And, you know, I love what you do. I love what the sword does. You know, earlier in the conversation, you mentioned about how you have all these different uh, musical interests and stuff, and it shows in a lot of the covers that you've been putting up on Bandcamp, that you've got quite the list of cool songs on there that you've tackled. You know, it's super great.
0: Thank you. I would I, I sincerely appreciate that. And uh, yeah, everybody, uh, Echo Lens is out in August, late August. Go get issue number one. Buy two. Hey. By three, <laughs> <Why not? laughs> it's uh, it's it's been a sincere pleasure uh, talking to you, man. And uh, yeah, is there any? Um, I I normally ask uh, guests if there's any uh, song they want to play at the end. Is there anything off the Blondie record? That, uh, any one of those tracks uh, that really stood out to you that you want to play? Maybe or, or anything at all, really. Play a sword song, damn, if you want.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh. Do you have access to their older catalog?
0: Absolutely. I, I can put anything you want on here.
1: Um, one of my favorite songs by them, which hardly ever gets uh, mentioned is off of one of the first uh, from the first LP I bought uh, is uh, angels on the balcony.
0: Awesome. Consider it done, man. Dude, cool. Seriously, seriously, Jim, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, are we going to see you? Uh, the swords playing, uh, um, I guess right before the, the book comes out, August 20th, uh Psycho Vegas. If you want to come out, uh, it's on the house. I really, if you don't, I totally understand.
1: <laughs> I, I will definitely let you know if I can make it. It'd awesome. be awesome to see you
0: guys. Absolutely, man. Well, uh, you take care. It's all Wendy. We said hi. And, uh, and thanks again, brother. In a distant
1: road, the
0: door is open and the- so cold. The children come in here and they dare the ghost like a fire in a stone. Tuning into the highway this week, a big shout out to Reverend Guitars, Railhammer Pickups, and Earthquaker Devices. If you liked what you heard, you can follow where you can follow, subscribe where you can subscribe, and if you want to go one step further, you can support us on Patreon at The Highway with Kyle Shutt. For a few bucks a month, you can help us keep this party going, get early access to next week's episode, and even get yourself a shout out.